dark, light, the good, the very good, our ending nearly written before our beginning, hearts hardened, eyes blinded, but again a great light has shone in what could have been the end. For through him, we need not stay in the dark. Though just glimpses, visions, and revelations in part, our advocate leads us on. And when he comes back, we'll be home. I just don't think God gets it. That was the statement he made to me in the middle of our conversation. You know, one of the best things about my job as a pastor is I get the privilege of meeting with a lot of people, hearing their stories, and, and I love understanding where people came from and what their journey in life has been like. If they know Jesus, I love to hear that story about how Jesus found them and they said yes to him and what God's been doing in their life. Or if they don't know about Jesus, I love telling them about God's story and how God's story can become part of uh, their story can become part of God's story and they can accept Jesus into their life. I love hearing stories and that was the reason that this man and I were meeting. He was having a, a terrible time in a very troubled relationship and he wanted out. And he wanted to know what a pastor thought about what he should do and he wanted to know about what God thought he should do. And so we met and I heard his story and I listened to him and then I shared some perspective from God's word and it was in the midst of that, he turned to me and he said, I just don't think God gets it. I don't think God understands. And I have long reflected on that conversation. And I've wondered maybe there was a different way I could have approached it. Maybe I, I could have said some things in, in a different way. But honestly, the, the reason that I have not forgotten that conversation is because to be honest, I asked that same question or I have those same feelings sometimes as well. Sometimes I wonder, does God get it? Does God understand? Let me just give you an example about this. There's a passage of scripture that's found in John 14. Now John, it was somebody who was an eyewitness to Jesus. He followed him for his time when Jesus was here on earth and he recorded the life and the story of Jesus and what Jesus taught and, and, and what he, 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 he showed us. And so John recorded this, this book called John and that's what we've been spending the last year here at Wooddale Church going through. And in John 14, Jesus is recorded by making this statement. Let me read just the first verse of 14 to you. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Those are the words of Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And honestly, sometimes I, I read that, don't let your hearts be troubled. And I think to myself, God, do you get it? Because there's a lot to be troubled about these days. I mean, inflation is, is sky high right now. Last time I filled up for gas, I couldn't believe how much it costs to fill my car up with gas. The grocery prices are, 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 are really pinching and, and making things very difficult for me and for many other people. And uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty in our economic situation right now. And in the midst of it, the words of Jesus are this, don't let your hearts be troubled. And you want to think, why, God? Why shouldn't my heart be troubled? Or maybe you're going through a relationship that is really challenging. Maybe your marriage is a mess. Maybe you're fighting with your kids. Maybe you are terrified about what's going to happen with your grandkids. 
Maybe you're lonely and you're desperate for a relationship and you feel like an outsider because everybody else has these relationships except you. Maybe you're going through some, some mental health challenges and in the midst of all of that, the words of Jesus, don't let your hearts be troubled, just seem to fall a little flat because you're like, Jesus, my life is full of trouble right now. Can you relate to any of that? I mean, I know I can so let me just say this, if, if you have ever thought any of those thoughts or if you've ever wondered, does God get it? Do you know what that makes you? It makes you normal and it makes you in good company because the disciples, they wondered the same thing at times. But these words of Jesus, don't let your hearts be troubled, they weren't shared with the disciples next to some lake someplace when Jesus was doing some weekend retreat on how to have spiritual enlightenment. These words were spoken into one of the most trouble-filled, tense, and discouraging moments that the first followers of Jesus ever faced. See, what was happening is Jesus had just got done telling all the disciples that he was leaving, that he was gonna die. And when he was going to die, so were their hopes and their dreams for what their future was going to be like. Because these disciples had left so much to follow Jesus, and they had big expectations for what their lives were going to be like when they assumed Jesus would take control over the nation of Israel. And when he said he was leaving, they didn't know what to do. It would be like this. It'd be like, uh, imagine there is a young, up-and-coming political candidate. And this person agrees and, and says all the things that you agree with. They, they support all the policies that you would love to see enacted the way that you would love to see them enacted. But this person is so good and they're able to convince people through wit and through wisdom and through great humor and these amazing stories. They're convincing everybody to come to their side. And then the few people that, that are against this person, man, man, this candidate just knows how to shut them down because he's just so good with, with how, to, how to pitch things and how to explain things. And so it's this, it's this great movement. And in the middle of this movement, this candidate comes to you and invites you personally to join his team. And so you, you leave your family behind, you quit your job, you move to Washington, D.C., and you spend your life traveling the country, going to all these events, all these rallies, all these meetings, and the movement is gaining momentum. You are way up in the polls. It is obvious that he is going to win and that your administration is, is going to set up control in the White House, and you are convinced because you're part of the inner circle that you're going to have a cabinet-level position that, that your, your future is secure. Maybe you're gonna be secretary of state, like you're set. And then a few weeks before the general election, you have this dinner and all the inner circle is there and the candidate announces that he's leaving, like the country leaving, like the plan was never to run for office. He was never gonna go through with the election and it's what you think over. That is the moment that Jesus says these words to the disciples, but it was actually far worse for the disciples because it wasn't just this political power that they were gonna gain when they thought Jesus would, would become the fullness of the Messiah. They thought that he was gonna kick out Rome and institute this, this long dreamt for idea within the nation of Israel that, that one day the Messiah would reign on the throne and God's kingdom was going to come and they were gonna be part of it. And then Jesus says he's gonna die. It makes no sense to them. 
So why, Jesus? Why should we not let our hearts be troubled? And Jesus explains why with the rest of verse one. He says this, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. And when Jesus says that, he's not saying trust in God and then in addition to God, trust in me. He's saying to the disciples and he's saying to us, trust in God by trusting in me. In other words, Jesus is saying that when you trust in God, that means that you trust in me. And when you trust in me, you trust in God because I am God. Troubled times have this amazing ability to reveal the thing that we have been putting our trust in. In fact, this is a principle. You, you, could, you could say it this way. You could say trouble tests our trust. That in the midst of our troubling times, that thing that you and I have been holding on to, that thing that we've been trusting, it becomes tested. Let me give you an example. So I have a chair over here, and uh, I believe that this chair can hold my weight. I, I believe it because uh, I, I've, uh, I've seen it happen. I've seen other people sit in chairs like this chair, and it's held them up. I, I've uh, paid attention to how this chair is constructed and, and it's set up in the right way to be able to withhold my weight. I, I've actually, uh, I've seen other people sit in this very chair and it held up their weight. So I'm, I'm very confident that this chair will hold my weight, but I'm not trusting in that chair yet. In fact, I could, I could tell you and, and talk about how much I believe that this chair will, will hold my weight. I could, uh, I, I could sing songs about how that, that chair will, will hold my weight. I could, I could go and hear a, a preacher give a message about con convincing me about how this chair is going to be able to hold my weight and I can trust in it, but I am not actually trusting in that chair by believing about it or knowing about it, but it's only when I actually sit in it that now I have entrusted my weight to the chair. Same is true when it comes to Jesus. He is saying in the midst of our trouble, don't just have a belief that you can trust in me, actually trust in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Literally when he's describing that, he means don't let our hearts, don't let ourselves get all stirred up. Don't let yourself get all stirred up inside. Rest in me, trust in me. You know, in the midst of troubled times, what I have a tendency to do is, is my version of trusting Jesus can sometimes look a little bit like this, where I just kind of, I lean a little bit. Like I'm, I'm really trusting in me to get through this situation, to, to figure out this problem, to handle that relationship, to, you know, to, to, to figure out the budget, to whatever the situation is. But, but I kind of like, I'll pray about it. Like I kind of hope that maybe God will help me out a little bit, but I'm really trusting in myself. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's just gonna allow yourself to get all stirred up inside. When you face trouble, you need to entrust yourself to me and to me only because, Jesus says, I am God. And honestly, Jesus could have stopped right there. He could have stopped right there and that would have been enough because when God speaks, we need to listen. That's the end of the story. But Jesus has such great compassion for us. And so Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus says, you need to trust in me and you need to trust in God by trusting in me because I have a great future for you. And so Jesus gives to us this beautiful promise that you and I can hold onto about why we should trust Jesus, especially in the midst of troubled times. And here is this, uh, it, it comes from this, this, uh, this amazing promise 
that Jesus goes on to say this in verse two. He says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. It's an amazing promise that Jesus says, in the midst of your trouble, don't get all stirred up because I have a future for you. I'm coming back and I'm gonna be with you. That's the promise that he makes to us. And it gives us this, it's a really interesting principle here that Jesus is articulating for us. And it's this, it's that the pain of the present can paralyze us. Have you experienced that in your own life? And that is so true for me. At times, I allow the painful moments of this world, and come on, we, we all have them. I mean, sometimes they're just inconveniences, and sometimes they're, they are deep anguish pains, the loss of somebody that we love, a relationship that falls apart. At, at, at moments, the trouble that we face in this world, it can leave us in a space where we just feel paralyzed. But here's the thing. But the promise of the future, let's go, let's go back to the rest of, that, uh, rest of that thought. But the promise of the future, it brings freedom to us. That's, that's the great hope. That in the midst of our trouble, knowing that there's a future beyond, knowing that it's not just about today, there, there's, a, there's a tomorrow coming and that tomorrow is gonna be so much better than today, that gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to not be consumed by the troubles that we're facing and, and to not be overwhelmed by it. And so when Jesus is talking about the future, what he's describing there is what you and I would call heaven. That's what he's talking about. He's talking that there's going to be a day in the future where we get to be with God forever in heaven. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking about heaven, because that's the future tomorrow that you and I have to look forward to. And when we understand heaven, it gives to us such great hope to trust in Jesus and deal with the troubles that we're facing in this world. Now, here's the thing about heaven. For many years, I had a misconception about what heaven was gonna be all about. And part of my misconception came from my worldview. Uh, it, many of us who grew up in the Western world have been really influenced by Greek philosophy. It's people like Plato and Aristotle. In fact, for many of us, we don't even recognize that we've been influenced by this. You may have never read anything by Plato or Aristotle, but yet you're still influenced by that thinking. And the Greeks, the, the philosophy of the Greeks had this concept that human beings were really, uh, it was really about our soul, that there was a disconnect between the soul and the body. And the body was kind of like this unfortunate casing that, that the real you, your soul was trapped in. And it was unfortunate because uh, the human body came with it all of these desires. And so in the way that the Greeks thought is that the whole purpose of life was to try to have your soul control the desires of the body. And if you were able to do that successfully, then the afterlife was a place of great reward for you. So if your soul did a good job managing and suppressing those uh, passions, then the afterlife would be a place of great reward. If your soul didn't do such a good job doing that, then the afterlife would be lesser rewards. And so we have this idea that the afterlife is a reward for how well we did on earth. But it's also this concept that the soul leaves the body. So if you have those images of heaven where somebody kind of gets wings and it's like they leave their body behind, but they, they, they fly up into the clouds and play a harp. That all is influenced by Greek philosophy, not actually by scripture. And so we've taken that Greek worldview and then we've added into it our own view of materialism. 
We, we just love material things and we, we tend to be very materialistic in our culture. So we assume if the afterlife is a place of great reward, there's gonna be some pretty awesome material benefits when we get to whatever the afterlife is. And so we've taken that worldview and then for many of us who are believers, we'll come across a few passages of scripture that talk about heaven and we kind of import that worldview into how we in interpret or understand scripture. So we just kind of naturally do this all the time. Let me give an example for us to, to look at together. So let's go back to verse two here when Jesus describes our future home. He says, there is more than enough room in my father's home. So when we read that, what jumps out at us? We think there's a big house. I guess it's gonna be a mansion. Right, and we, we get all excited about like, I wonder what the mansion's gonna be like. But for Jesus, his focus wasn't on the size of the home. It wasn't about heaven being a place of great material reward, but rather Jesus is focusing on how heaven is all about a relationship. To understand that, we have to understand that John and those first few followers of Jesus, when they would have been gathered around this dinner table, having this conversation with Jesus, their understanding of family was very different than ours. In the first century, a Jewish boy would have the understanding that he was going to live at home with his dad for as long as his father was alive. And then whatever the father did, the sons of that father also did. So whatever business the dad had, it was a very agricultural society. So whether it was farming or fishing, that, that was John's story, the one who's writing this to us, his dad was a fisherman uh, or a carpenter, whatever it was, uh, as a son, you just always did what your dad's business was and you would support your father. And as a result, the father would kind of take care. He'd be the head of the household and he'd provide for everybody. And then when it came time for the sons to get married, what they would do is they would go and find a woman that they were gonna become engaged to. They'd go back to their father's home and there they would build a room, kind of like an addition on that home. And once that addition was done, once the room was ready, then they would go find the woman that they were engaged to, they'd get married and then they would come and live together in the father's home. And she would be welcomed in as part of the family. So when Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, what he's describing for us is he's going to prepare a place and that heaven is this moment where we get to come and be and live in relationship with God the Father. That we get to spend the rest of eternity being about the Father's business and having God the Father provide for us and that we get to be accepted and welcomed in as a family member. Heaven's not about a place of all these material rewards. It's about a relationship. And that's what you and I have to look forward to. And so heaven then doesn't become this, this kind of fairyland that's like way far away up in the clouds. Heaven actually is a place that comes here. That, that God is gonna bring heaven here to earth and he's gonna remake his creation and welcome us to be part of it. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes to us about this because he's wanting us to, to understand how the significance of Jesus' resurrection is, is kind of like a, a promise of what is to come for you and for me. 
And so Paul writes about the resurrection of Jesus as a way of kind of explaining how the process of heaven comes to earth. And here's what Paul writes him. In 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That is so important for us to understand if we are trusting in Jesus. Because just like Jesus rose from the grave, so you and I one day will rise again as well. Paul goes on to write, he says, he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. That's true for you and for me if we put our trust in Jesus. But he finishes, Paul says, but there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of a great harvest. That's already happened. So step one of this process is a check. So now we await the next step of the process. And Paul says, and here it is. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So when Jesus returns, there will literally be a bodily, that means our bodies, resurrection of those of us who have died. Then that's gonna happen when Jesus returns. After that, the end will come where he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. And so there's this promise that there's this day in the future when Jesus is gonna return. And just like Jesus rose with a glorified body, that means you and I one day are gonna rise again from the grave if we have put our faith in Jesus and we too will have a glorified body. And then at that moment, then God brings heaven to earth. In fact, John, the same John who's, who's writing the, the, the book, John, that, the, that we're going through, God also gave John a vision of what that future state was gonna look like. It's called Revelation. At the end of Revelation, John writes this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. See, God's remaking it. And he says, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, which I think is so powerful that heaven is actually a city. God loves the city. Do you know why? Because there are people there and God loves people. That's part of this future vision. And said, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. That's what it means to come home, that we get to live in the presence of God forever. And then John finishes up, he says, he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Folks, if we have put our trust in Jesus, that's the future that we're looking forward to. And so when Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled, don't let yourself get all stirred up about what you're going through, it's because this is this amazing hope, this amazing future that you and I have promised by Jesus that is coming to us. And that is just such good news. It just gives us so much joy. And for me and and for so many others, it's like, how do I get there? Because the resurrection is gonna be this time where we we live with God forever and enjoy his creation. Here's kind of how I picture it. It, It's like, if you've ever had a, a day where you had no responsibilities, and a day where you got to just spend with people that you love and who love you. Have you ever had a day like that? 
That is like a little glimpse of how all eternity and the resurrection is going to be. That we get to enjoy our relationship with God and our relationship with others because we're all part of a big family that get to live together in heaven. That's the future that we're looking forward to. And so the question's like, well, how do we get there? Because I want in on that. And that's kind of what the disciples say next in response. Let's pick up the story in John 14, verses four and five. So Jesus continues, he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't know the way, Lord, Thomas said. If you read through the gospels, Thomas is always good for like a, a really obvious or kind of awkward question. Uh, and he says, we, have no, uh, we don't know where you're going. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus follows up with one of his most bold statements that is so important for you and I to understand, especially in light of how we become part of God's kingdom. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus told him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's me. Jesus says, the only way that all of that comes to happen is through me. Which means the offer that Jesus gives to us is exclusive. It means that if you don't put your faith and your trust in Jesus, then all those things that we just described about the resurrection and the future and being at home with God the Father, that's not available to us. Which feels, I don't know, at, at times maybe unfair. And for so many people, maybe for you, we're right back to where we began. I'm just not sure God gets it. And there's so many people who are, are wondering about Christianity. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're listening. You're here at one of our campuses. Maybe somebody forwarded you this message because you're, you're, you're trying to explore Christian faith and you have questions about it. You're not sure about it. Maybe you're deconstructing your faith and you're trying to figure out what is actually true and what you actually believe. And it comes back to this core topic because Christianity feels really exclusive. How do you deal with that? So let me just say this. If, if that's true for you, if, if you're exploring faith, if, you, if you're questioning your faith, if you're wrestling with some of these issues, just two things. First of all, I believe that God is for you and that he will meet you in your searching. If you are truly searching for truth, I believe that God will reveal his truth to you. It's gonna be your choice if you wanna accept it or not. But I believe that God is for you and he'll meet you in that process. Second thing, is I know you have a lot of questions and they're good questions. And a lot of them are about the troubles that you faced in this world. You have questions about why bad things happen to people that you perceive to be good. You, you have questions about certain behaviors. You have questions about different religious groups. You have questions about how certain Christians don't seem to act like Christians. You, you, you have, you, I don't know, maybe you have questions about the dinosaurs. You have some really good questions but let me just encourage you, the place to start isn't with all those important questions. It's right here with John 14, six. Start here because Jesus makes this incredibly bold claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one 
can go to God the Father except through him. And the reason that you need to start here is because if you don't accept these words from Jesus and you don't agree with Jesus about this, the rest of the stuff is just gonna take care of itself and it's gonna go away. But if you agree with Jesus on this, it will give to you a foundation from which to be able to explore and start to answer all of those other important questions. So let's take Jesus at his words. Why is Jesus saying that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life? Well, that first phrase, I am the way, is a powerful statement where Jesus is once again telling the disciples and he's telling us, I am God. The only way to God is through me because it's me. See, God's heart has always been for people. When God created this world, he created it and invited us, his creation, to partner with him. God's plan has always been to do his actions and his work through us as humans, but he wants to be in relationship with us. But we stepped away from that relationship. We told God that we didn't wanna do it his way. We wanted to be in charge. We wanted to be gods. We wanted to know right from wrong and we wanted to make the world our way. And so we stepped away from him. And when we did, there was a separation that happened between humanity and God. The Bible has a term for that, it's called sin. And every time we sin, we take actions that are outside of God's plan, outside of God's best, and it just adds to our separation between us and God. But even in the midst of that, God didn't leave us alone. He came and he said, I still wanna be with you because I love you. And so God made a way before Jesus and there was a season of time with, with the, uh, the Israelites, the God's chosen people, where he would, his spirit would come and dwell in a place called the tabernacle or a temple. And he would, he would confine himself to a room that was curtained off called the most holy place because he was, he was trying to get as close to his people as he could. And then once a year, he would allow a high priest to come in and, and kind of be, be, be a represent, representative for the people to God and, and would, would commune with God in that most holy place. But the only way he could come in was through one doorway, only one doorway. And by coming through that doorway, he had to bring a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was something called a, a sacrifice for atonement. That just means covering up an atonement for sins. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, he is saying in the same way that you need a high priest to come make atonement for your sin in order to, to, to be in a right standing with God, I have come and gone to the cross as an atoning sacrifice for all of the world who will accept it so that you can now have a right relationship with God. And in the same way, there was only one way to enter with God. Jesus is saying, it's still there, but it's me now. I'm now the way. And here's the reality. What that means is, is it means that if we don't believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, if we believe that there's another way to get into a relationship with God, another way to be welcomed into God the Father's home apart from Jesus, what we are saying is that the cross that Jesus died on doesn't matter because we don't need it. And it means the resurrection of Jesus doesn't matter because we don't need it. And it means the new life that Jesus promises to give to you and to me, to cover over our sin and to change our heart and to make us more like him, we don't need because we can do it ourselves. That's the significance of saying there's any other way to God. And that is why this statement is so bold and is something that we need to truly consider. 
Because the reality is when you trust in Jesus, you trust in him and in him alone, or you don't trust in Jesus. Kind of comes back to this chair. You can't stand and sit at the same time. At some point, you have to make a decision. Am I going to fully entrust myself to Jesus and Jesus alone because of the audacious claims that Jesus made? That he is God, that he is the only way to the Father, that he is the only sense of truth, and that he's the only one that can give new life. And to trust in Jesus means to take him at his very word. And when we do, we can be assured that there's that hope of heaven and that we don't need to get all stirred up about the trouble of this world. But that doesn't really answer our question, does it? I mean, for some of you, you're like, but Kyle, it still seems, I don't know, unfair that there's only one way to have a restored relationship with God. There's only, there's only one way to get to heaven and it's Jesus. And, and if there's only one way, then why doesn't God want everybody to know about that one way? And that's a great question. And the answer to that question is he does. Remember when I said God has always chosen to work through human agents? The same is true with this. Jesus has said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one can go to the Father except through me. And then Jesus said, all of you who have trusted in me, I have entrusted this message to you. And I'm inviting, I am asking, I am pleading those of you who trust in me to go tell as many people as possible. Because it's the heart of God that none of us should walk away from Jesus' invitation and that none of us should miss out on the place that Jesus may have for us in his father's home. And so here's what that means. The question really isn't, does God get it? The question is, do we get it? Do we understand the significance of letting people know that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one can get to the Father except through Jesus. Because that is good news. It's available to anybody who will trust in Jesus. And it's the only news that allows us to not let ourselves get all stirred up by the trouble of this world. So the question for you and for me, are we trusting fully in Jesus? If yes, who else needs to know? Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm so grateful that you inspired John to record these events and these words. Father, we believe these words are powerful. We believe these words are true. Father, we believe these words are words of invitation. So Father, for those of us who are experiencing the troubles of this world, Father, I pray that we wouldn't get ourselves all stirred up, but we would, we would take this moment right in this space and we would reaffirm our trust in you, not in ourselves. And Father, for those who are seeking, I pray that you would meet them there, that you would reveal your truth to them. And Father, that they would 
they would take the step of choosing to entrust the weight of their soul to you. And Father, I pray that those of us that know you would be committed and give our lives to letting other people know about you so we can fill up your Father's home in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.